Welcome to episode 6 of the Best Side Podcast. Now, it could be you or it could be a friend sitting on the fence with an idea that you've had but you've done nothing about it just yet. This is the episode for you. Migrating to Aotearoa at a very young age, Izel Kochu was introduced to hard work as a strong family value right from the word go. Unfortunately, she was also introduced to a lot of discrimination, tall poppy syndrome and put in a box due to things beyond her control. An experienced underage and a name that's too hard to pronounce or say over the phone so people just didn't talk to her. We get to hear how to climb these obstacles and use the chip on your shoulder to your advantage against the world which sometimes can seem like all they want you to do is fail and here there's heaps and heaps of how-to little tutorials of practical advice as well as some emotional or I guess less tangible insights uh, into how to navigate what at times can be a pretty nasty world especially in business especially as a female in business especially as a young female in business all pretty crazy but make sure you stay tuned for this one as I said if you've been sitting on the fence with a business idea, this is the episode for you. The first question I always yeah. ask, and I know you're well drilled, I've heard yeah. you give this a million yeah. times, but obviously yeah. we have a lot of people listening that yeah. haven't heard of you before. Yeah. Um, so where are you from and where did you grow up, etc. Absolutely, so um, I'll just start with my name. My yep. name's Izal Kochu, I'm 26 years old. Um, I actually had a dream the other night where I was 27 and I was, oh, so funny, I was in, um, I was talking to somebody and I told them that I was 27 and in my dream I was having anxiety about turning 27, <laughs> so I'll lead with that, it was, it was actually so funny. Um, but my parents came here in 1997 from Istanbul and they must have been like in their late 20s, but they brought my brother and I, he was two years old at the time, and um we arrived in Nelson um, and there was a really, really big storm that day. So I always tell people that the minute we arrived, it was just this massive breath of fresh air for my family because the journey was so long. And back then it's like, you know, the, the world didn't really travel and mm. um, it was just a really difficult journey for my parents to upheave their lives to move to New Zealand. And it was only supposed to be for a couple of years. Um, they were really young, they wanted to travel. My auntie and uncle were here in Nelson, at down in Nelson, so they um, wanted to spend some time with them, and my cousins were growing up, so they were really excited to bring my brother and I into that environment with my cousins. Um, but we ended up staying here, it's been 22 years in New Zealand, which is so crazy. People still like, people, it's really interesting because people still think that I'll have an accent and they think I'm really fresh and it's like I'm like I've been here for all of my life. I know nothing outside of this life and here in New Zealand. Um but yeah, I went to Nelson College for Girls. Um after seventh form seventh form, yeah, year thirteen. Um I was seventeen and I left I left Nelson to move up to Wellington. I had nothing to my name, I basically ran away from home. Um and decided to you know, work and be independent, but being independent obviously means that you have to get a job mm. and pay for rent and pay for bills. Um, so that was a really big wake up call. Yeah. Um, yeah, ended up doing dishes in a restaurant for a really long time, as in like six months, did that. And then my family were going to Turkey, so they decided to take me with them. Um, and within that time, I'd meet my co founder, which I didn't know back then, I didn't know he was going to be my co founder, but it was this. Um, guy that I ended up meeting through mutual friends um, and it's so interesting they always say to you that one person can change your life 
and I don't think you really understand it, but the person that I had met um, ended up being my co-founder of Story, and he changed my life. Um, I ended up going to comp- doing computer science at Victoria University, so got went to Turkey with my family, um, then ended up coming back to New Zealand, didn't know what I wanted to do, so I chose computer science. And back then there weren't any other courses, there weren't like a UB School of Design, there wasn't a Dev Academy, there wasn't any of those things that we have now. Um, but it was a really intensive software degree. And you would be an engineer, it was an engineering degree. Um, I was one of 10 girls in a class of 500, it might have even been five, I remember it being five girls, but I'm sure there was more than that, I'm sure there was 10. Um, and I remember by the time I'd left, there were only a few girls left in the class. Um, but I ended up leaving after my first semester because we'd come up with this idea for this app. And um, I came into it sort of as a more um, doing the grunt work. So I was the one doing the social media stuff. I was the one doing the writing. I was the one doing the content. I was the one sitting there and looking over the website and stuff. So it was really a lot of the grunt work. Um, and after we got investment from Gareth Morgan, my co-founder and I went to Seattle and I was 18, I must have been 19 when I moved there. We to started Seattle? The company, yeah, we started the company in August and we were in um, Seattle by early September and I still remember being 19 and there's like restaurants and clubs that I wasn't allowed to be in. More restaurants that turned into bars later on. Yep. And the drinking age there is 21. That's right, So it's yeah. like, you're not allowed to be there. But he'd like, my co-founder would be having meetings and I'd be sitting in there going, I really should not. I'm not allowed to be here, but I just would. Um, was it fun? That aspect fun. of it? Yeah, yeah, it was. It was just kind of like, I was so out of my comfort zone. Um, I was so young. I was so inexperienced, so naive. But I was just really excited to get this idea off the ground and that idea was story. Um, so we had this big idea to create one app where museums could add their content so add their images and audio and video and um, all of the information that they spend millions and millions of dollars on every single year but are confined to plaques Um, and we wanted to digitize that and that was the big time when um, museums were going into asset development so they were digitizing (laughs) that's a really hard word to say they were digitizing their um, assets anyway. So all of the artwork, all of the sculptures, they were putting it into databases anyway. So it was a really good time where we had this piece of technology, museums that were really interested in creating that content and for us to provide that platform. And we just did not understand that that was a global need. Um, And within our first year, we'd already catapulted into this company that um, was operating in five different countries. We so how did it like from a practical sense? Like yeah. take me through it. I come to the museum. Yeah. What do I do? How does Absolutely. it work? So um, the museum advertised uh, downloading the app, which was great. So we focus on the technology. The museum put all the advertising out to download the story app. Took care of the marketing for you. Absolutely, they put in all the content. They used it because we knew where they were. We used geolocationing. Um, or they would scan a QR code because QR codes were the big thing back then. Mm-hmm. So you would scan a QR code and you would get the story behind the painting. Um, and then as, a, as a visual text or as an audio or both? Anything. Or? Anything. Or any sort of medium that the museum wanted to include. Um, and the content was great. The way it would flow it was, was really good. And then once you left the museum, we would suggest other museums in the area. 
So it came this really nice uh, joint marketing effort between cities, between museums, um, between art galleries to push visitors to other places where they could go and get this content. Um, and it just blew up. Um, within four years, yeah, we had already we had five hundred customers, sixty staff around the world. We'd raised over ten million dollars. Um, we had a really big backing from government, and we just decided to continue down that path and end up selling it after four years, which was really difficult to do. But can you tell us how much you sold it for? No, okay. it wasn't. It, and actually, I'll be honest, it wasn't anything sizable, mm-hmm. and we basically broke even. Um, we we sold the company before we had to, for reasons that include a million different things going on at that particular time. Yeah. Both personally and business-wise by the sounds of it? All business. Yeah, okay. All business. Um, and so many factors that were outside of our control that, yeah, I ended up leaving before that even happened. So... Um, it I worked out. It worked out. <laughs> worked out in a big way. And I decided to... Um, continue another project that I had on the side which was non-stop ticks it was a small ticketing company and we had ticketing a part of story anyway and um did that for a couple months and then went okay well actually it's it's easier to develop something from the ground up um and there's a really big need for good ticketing and around the world ticketing that simply works um and so the idea of Passphere was born out of that we've been in development for two years Ticketing is not easy. Building ticketing software is really, really hard to do, which is why it's non-globally. There is no good ticketing solution. Um, you think people just like don't bother because of how hard it is? Oh, it's so difficult. It's, people think it's a cakewalk, but it's really, really difficult. What's hard about it? Um, a lot of edge cases, you know, the user journeys. It's not user goes to said event, user buys tickets to event, user gets tickets to that event and they go to the event and that's Bob's your uncle. It's like Tom and Sally want to go, Sally can't go, blah, blah, blah. She wants to sell her ticket, but then Tom still wants to go and she can't sell her ticket. It's been fraudulently given to somebody else. Virgo goes put a 20% markup on it, whatever. Like the... The user journeys for any one person buying a ticket and never just clean cut. <laughs> um, so we've had to integrate every single um, every single user case and everything else to this to this platform. Crazy. So it's been a challenge. I want but you to think back to when you first come to yeah. New Zealand. You, you often speak about your mum kissing the pavement because of, <laughs> because of how crazy the flight was and crazy. everything like that. Yeah. Can I ask? Because a lot of guests that I have on the on the podcast yeah. um, that have been migrants um, have talked about a bit of discrimination that they were subject to when they first got here did you and your family go through that when you first arrived oh you know and I'm only yes absolutely and I'm only hearing about this now so which is really interesting to me Uh, there's three things about that when we first arrived here there wasn't a Turkish there isn't a Turkish um, community in New Zealand firstly there's very little there's very little Turks in New Zealand uh, when my parents first arrived, they started working with my auntie down in Nelson at their kebab shop, which is very stereotypical, but they owned a restaurant. My parents worked there. Both of my parents have economics and accounting degrees, um, and they were washing dishes and cutting up a thousand heads of lettuce. And I still remember my mum chopping up their lettuce, and she would come <laughs> home, and her 
hands would hurt. She's doing the hand action, so I know that it's well sewn into. You can Um, probably smell the lettuce still. Oh my gosh, it was just like, you know, this woman and my dad, my mum and my dad just worked so, so, so hard for like nothing, you know, for no money at all. Mm. And then, but still was able to save money and open our own restaurant in Richmond, which is about 15 minutes from Nelson. Um, and I, and I only got told this a couple of years ago, but I remember it so heavily. I just didn't know what it was back then, but the first day that they opened, um, they ran out of food by midday. So you could tell that the community was so excited for them to be there. Um, but then a few months after that opened, these skinheads were in their car driving up and down Queen Street, which is the main road in Richmond. Um, saying that my parents put cat and dog meat in the kebabs. Uh, so and and you remember them I still remember it and like I was, you remember them driving past I remember, or I, I remember them so vividly like it was yesterday driving past with a megaphone oh shit you know and going up and down the street and I was like you know what's happening my parents told us to get inside me and my little brother and we just end up playing behind the restaurant we'd be on our scooters and stuff so so naive to the fact and um you know going through school so that was the that was the first you know, really direct, really direct um, racism or discrimination that we faced in Nelson and in Richmond particularly. And as I grew up, I realised that Nelson's actually a really racist part of New Zealand. Okay. Unfortunately, and that's not a lot of, that's not many people know that, but there's been a lot of, lot of incidences where this has happened to other tourists and other people living down there. Um... And I just, like, don't condone racism or just any discrimination on any level. It's not okay. Um, so that was the first time. And I think I was about six years old. So two years after moving here. Mm-hmm. Six, seven years old. Um, today I face it because people won't pick up the phone and call me because they're scared of saying my name. Um, See, I just asked. Yeah, you know, which is like the human thing to do. It's like if you don't know how to say somebody's name, you ask them Mm. to pronounce it properly. Or shit, you just give it a go and either get corrected or it's not the end of the world. Yeah. But then I see it with my brother and I see it when I hire people too. Like when it's so easy as an employer to look at a list of people and go straight to the ones that you can make reference to. And um, I realized that when I started hiring that it's actually a really big key part of how employers discriminate against people coming up into the workforce. So now that what we do is make sure that our advertising and that our job descriptions um, can be in a way that attract everybody from any race, any background, any ethnicity, um, and any skill level as well. Um, It's not often that it's more often better for a company to hire people that are passionate versus how skilled they are mm. versus them having a degree or not. Why? Uh, look, it's re- you can be taught. You can be taught things. You can learn things. You can teach yourself things. But only if you want to be taught and only if you want to learn. If you don't, a degree is going to do nothing for me. Your piece of paper with your degree and your, um, you know, your designation or whatever that what you have does nothing for me if you don't want to be in the company, if you aren't passionate about what you're doing every day, if your head's not in it. Um, and that's what I ultimately look for. It's never about how many years, years you've spent at college. So you mentioned 
you know, that's your first, I guess, chronological, remember? Yeah, that's probably been put back in there now that you say yeah. you've been one. But it sounds like you've got some other examples too of stuff. Can you yeah. share those? I mean, just throughout the years, it's always happened. And as a woman, as a young woman, young first, woman second, third minority, um, although I don't look ethnic, is how people like to say it, oh, ethnic or exotic, which I fucking hate. I was going to say, how does that make you feel when people say shit like that? It's just like, it's, oh, it's so naive, mm. you know, and anyway, so ethnic, the way I'm seen is, um, I, when you look at me, you don't see it. You go, oh, maybe she's Eastern European, she looks a little bit French, maybe she's Russian, maybe she's from like Croatia or something, you know, but you don't look at me and go, she's a young Muslim female in New Zealand. And she's a young Muslim female now in New Zealand after what's happened in Christchurch. Mm. Um, so from the from the outside, I don't look like your typical person. I don't look like your typical immigrant coming to this country. I don't have an accent, all of those things. Until you see my name. And then <laughs> people ask, are like, ah, immigrant. Yeah, exactly. And then you're like, then like, well, the biggest question that I get still to this day is, are you a citizen? Do you have a New Zealand passport? And it drives me up the wall. It drives me up the wall. Why? If, if I didn't, I wonder what the response was. Yeah. And, then you, and then, as a person, you start justifying. My parents have been here for 22 years. My family has lived here for 22 <coughs> years. We never go back to Turkey. Um, you know, all of these things that you end up trying to um, justify for that person because they want to know if you've come in as a permanent resident or if you're a citizen of this country and that I always wonder what would happen if I said that I wasn't that always plays in my head so yeah it's a really difficult time to be an immigrant in this world not just a citizen of this world I should say Um, not just in New Zealand but equally what's happening in the United States people are in cages it's it's actually it's a really really dark time to be a person on this planet I want to ask you, this one's going to be a bit, maybe a bit tough to answer, but I'm going to ask you, if you don't want to answer, yeah, you don't want to yeah, answer. Sorry. And I don't even know how to word it, but it's just come to me as I've talked to you, and I've never asked this question before. But being uh, a migrant or whatever, yeah. moving here when you were younger, yeah. what were your interactions like with Polynesian people? Because Amazing. Okay. Amazing. So what a lot of people don't know is that a lot of, and I won't, I always hate it when people go Māori and Polynesian as if it's like two of the same, it's not. (laughs) Māori or Polynesian, they're two different things. Um, But the great thing about um, like Polynesian culture and also Māori culture is that it's very similar to Turkish culture. And why? Because we've got years and years of deep-rooted culture, years and years of deep-rooted history that span back across multiple continents, multiple time zones, multiple years, um, but also is the love and warmth of family, the love and warmth of faith and um, ide- ideals that we all have, um, and food. Of course. <laughs> Which our entire culture is centered around mm. is food, family, and having, um, having morals. So, it's really interesting, the, the, the little amount of Turks that are here in New Zealand um, are married to either Polynesian or Māori um, 
wives or husbands, which is really interesting yeah. to me. And it's because our cultures are so, so similar, even though it's spread across thousands of miles, which is really interesting. So when you moved from Nelson to Wellington, yeah. was it like a sudden influx of Polynesian friends? Or like, <laughs> yeah, or like yeah, you know, because yeah, yeah. the Nelson I know, yeah. there's not many no. brown-skinned people down there. And so, yeah, did you, was that noticeable when you moved to Wellington or was it? It is so noticeable. It's like a sore thumb, literally. Um, and the fact that as in Nelson, it's like a little, um, there's more, there's more Scandinavian immigrants that have come over. Okay. So, um, English, German, you know, and moving to Wellington, I don't know. I think it was just that you got exposed to more cultures like it was like a melting pot you know wellington auckland and christchurch um and now queenstown as well like those hubs are a melting pot for culture and a melting pot for every ethnicity so coming from nelson to um wellington it made me understand what it felt like to be human it made me understand what it felt like to have responsibilities and to be independent and that i could actually choose friends um, and I could choose friends that would, could become my family. So I think that was the biggest realisation moving from a very small town, New Zealand city like Nelson, which is actually not that small, it's quite big mm. in the grand scheme of New Zealand towns and cities. Um, but moving to an even bigger city like Wellington and then moving to Seattle, which is, again, a completely different um, mindset altogether. Uh, was really interesting. Tell me about Seattle then. What were we there? Like what, what was yeah. different? What was a different mindset? Was it another big melting pot or was it very mm-hmm. one way? Or? No, it's, it's, Seattle's a really interesting place. I love Seattle for many reasons. Um, Seattle has a really big um, Native American heritage and really big Native American presence within the United States. And like everywhere in the US, there is always a presence, but there is more... Um, of that deep-rooted historic culture that's in Seattle um, and it goes all the way back to um, Native Indian tribes coming in and like settling and the history around that which is beautiful you know it's indigenous culture um, that was in the country before it was colonized right so um, it's got a it's got an incredible um, history already deep-rooted in a country that doesn't have yet you know thousands of years of culture and history Mm. like turkey or um china or other areas of the world um people are a lot more liberal they're a lot more like new zealanders which um was really comforting for me because it felt like home um, it was that melting pot. A bit of an easy transition. Easy transition. The weather's just as Was that the first place you went to in the States? Yeah, so it. I'm guessing like a lot of stereotypes or assumptions you had about America was probably doused straight away when you got absolutely, to Seattle? Yeah. Absolutely. Because um, what a lot of people don't understand until you spend a lot of time in the US is that every state is different. Oh, every man. city is different. You know, the countries within countries almost. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's one big thing. I so my brother's in Nashville at the moment. Oh yeah, and it's been funny. Nashville. It's been funny watching yeah. him like light up because I'm guessing like yourself and like I know I did before I went to the states. We had all these assumptions because of media and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And yeah. I'm loving watching him, and he's just getting all those assumptions smashed to smithereens yeah. and enjoying himself. Yeah, so. absolutely. Like there's an element of wanting the stereotype. Like you want to be able to go to a diner and have 
you know, the pancakes and the scrambled eggs and the hash browns. You want to go and, um, you know, go through the drive through of Taco Bell. Like, you want some of those <laughs> stereotypes because that's what American culture is. Mm. It's, it's not stereotypes, it's just the culture. Um, so you want an element of that, but then you understand the minute that you get into it, it's nothing like the movies. Yep. It's one of the big things I tell people when they go to LA, when they ask me about LA, I just say, look, be prepared, like it's not what you see on TV. No. A lot of people imagine flashy lights and movie premieres and stuff, which does exist. Yeah. There's also a lot of homelessness yeah. and a lot of gang stuff. Like yeah. it's, it's pretty crazy. It is pretty crazy. Yeah. Um, sticking to the theme of discrimination. Yeah. Since we've met, yeah. and, I, and I'm talking about like Wellington and kind of right through to now, and yeah. I, I saw it in your eyes again as we were doing the Q&A at Spotswood College this morning. Yeah, yeah. I can tell that like, for lack of a better term, like mana wahine mm. or empowerment yeah. for women is yeah. something that's of primary importance yeah. to you and you could yeah. not scream it loud enough. Yeah. So why do you think this is such a big thing and what are some things do you think people need to know that they don't? Yeah. And I guess what is a message as well you'd like to say to, yeah. you know, teenage girls listening at the moment and yeah. they want to achieve their dreams and stuff because yeah. I know it's going to be hard for you to put into words because I know something yeah. you're super passionate about yeah. but let's talk about that. Yeah, facets to that as well um and i'll take it right back Mm -hmm. so in thankfully in turkey um empowering women takes a really strong footing in society you know women hold a lot of respectable high role positions in turkey they have for many many years unfortunately that's being oppressed now by the current government um but turkey in the place where it is geographically within other um, Western and Arabic countries and Eastern, Middle Eastern countries, okay. we are more highly progressive. Um, but if I take it back to my mum and dad, you know, my both of them are very highly educated people. They're very open-minded. They're very liberal. I was always, always grown up to um, believe that I could do whatever I wanted, that I could be whoever I wanted, that I could marry whoever I wanted, um, that I could always pave my own journey and live it the way I wanted to live it. I never had to live for my parents, with, which a lot of young women do. But it was hard growing up with three boy cousins. So two boy cousins and my little brother. And it was this us four. So I was the oldest, but I was also the only female. Mm. And growing up, it was always that they could go and do these things as they were men. Or they, they could go and do these things because they weren't a girl. And so as I had to stay at home while they had to go, they could go and spend time with their friends or whatever. Um, so that was drawn into me from a really, really young um, childhood. And unfortunately... It kept creeping back up every single time I'd, um, for example, I'd come to Wellington and it was really hard for me to get a job, even though I'd had like retail experience, I'd worked in a restaurant. For a young kid, for a young kid under 18, I actually had a lot of experience working with within businesses, but it was really hard for me to get a job. And I've never actually spoken about this, but it was my dad... So my dad would send me money um, when I was in Wellington and I always asked my mum, I'd always tell her and ask her why dad would always send me money because I'd essentially ran away from home, right? And <laughs> he would say to me, is that a young female with no money can do a lot of things, can do a lot of harmful things to herself to be in that situation where you can't put food on your own table or keep a roof under, under your head. 
and I didn't understand what it was at the time, but um, it's young girls that feel like they can't do anything but run away from home to be able to live their lives truly. That when they can't get a job or they don't have money, that they go into things without thinking um, and dangerous paths. So you can kind of, you know, read around what I'm trying to say. Yep. Um, and you can feel very vulnerable in that situation. And so for a lot of young people, not just females and not just males, but um, for young people trying to make their way in the world that don't have access to good jobs or just decent jobs, any job, and money coming in, it can put them in very vulnerable positions. Um, for me right now, and my core, core mission and passion in life is to um, let other women and young women especially know that they do have the exact same opportunities as any other male in this world. Um, and even though it's said frequently, we've got a female prime minister, which is, you know, really big around the world, and especially here in New Zealand, um, that we have to continue to echo that statement, that young women don't need to feel in a vulnerable position um, because society makes us feel that way. Because for a really long time, you know, we, our beauty industries are thriving, our, um, stereotypes of how a woman should look are thriving and even for young men too it's like we put everyone into these boxes and if they don't look a certain way then we look at them differently and that for me is not okay um i've experienced a lot over my career especially being 18 and naive um and I knew that I didn't have the right skill set. I, I knew that I didn't have the work experience as an 18-year-old or a 19-year-old, right? Mm -hmm. um, but when we, when we actually got our board, when we got our, um, when we got our formal professional board within Story, I was, again, the youngest, the only female, and in a boardroom with men that were two, three times my age. So I've had to deal with, firstly, the ageism, which is a thing, which I'm bringing that word in, because you don't say it enough. Yep, it's cool. Like, you're younger than me, so you don't know shit. And that's literally what they, what you can feel when they look at you. So going home with that impression every single day made me upskill really damn quick. I would, te I would literally teach myself into, you know, like sleeping on... I'd get so exhausted that I'd literally sleep on my computer or on a book or so many times. I can imagine you just waking up on your keyboard. Yeah, literally so many times. The amount of times where that, that's actually happened is I can't even, I don't have enough fingers to count. Um, so going through that, I'd be going to talks, so I'd be speaking and the number one question that I would get without a doubt, um, and I've actually end up counting it so within the 40 talks that I did within a year um, the number one question that I get from the audience is what is it like to be a female entrepreneur or a female a young female in tech is what I'd get mm -hmm. more frequently and I got to the point where I was like look women do a lot of difficult things in their lives we don't need to continue to ask them what it's like you wouldn't ask my male co-founder what it's like to be a male um, a man in tech a young man in tech. So the question does piss you off? Oh, 
yeah, absolutely. You'd rather just not be asked? No. It's Can you like, understand why people are interested, though, and why they want to know? Or well, is, it, is it baffling to you? No, it's... um, it's No, it's I, I understand it completely. Mm-hmm. What is it... But it would be so much nicer if it was just... What does it feel like to be a young person in technology? Okay. That, for me, like, why, why generalise it? Why do I... Why does it have to come with... Um, what is it like to be a young woman in tech? Because, mm-hmm. actually, it's not... The reality of it is not pretty. The reality of it is that I would much rather just talk about the things that I've worked on instead of focusing on the fact that I'm a female. Mm-hmm. That's what I would much more prefer. See, I'm, I'm glad I've never asked you that question. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but yeah. at the same time, okay. I wouldn't have put myself past asking you that yeah. because yeah. in my head, yeah. I would be asking you that with the goal of, look, there's lots of young women watching yeah. and we know it can be hard. Yeah. So how can we encourage them to do it? That would yeah. be my... Yeah. And can you see that? Yes, or, okay. absolutely. absolutely. So the, the question, look, even though it gets asked today, it gets asked, not today, today, but yeah, like, yeah, yeah. even though it gets asked frequently, I will still answer it and I will give them the most honest <laughs> response back. But when it happens to you over hundreds of times yep. in your career, you get really bloody old. One, it gets really bloody old. The one that trips me out that yeah. you see a lot, and yeah. I have to admit, I was ignorant to this for a very long time until it was, I want to say it was Charlize Theron, but I'm yeah. not too sure, yeah. um, was the red carpet situation. Yeah. So, no. guys, how did you find this role? What attracted you to this role? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Girls come out. What are you, you wearing? wearing? Yeah, honestly. And it's a thing that you want to ask, you know, you want to ask what they're wearing, whatever, you know, it's like a nice general thing that you want to ask, but um, I was at a Wellington on a plate dinner the other day, um, and one of the chefs came down and sat down with us after, and they, one of them brought out that a female chef, and she goes, wait, wait, I'm going to correct myself. What is it like working with this chef? And they've removed women out of it completely because mm. it's like, why do we need to segment out the fact that they're both chefs? One of them is a male, one of them is a female, but they are both chefs. It doesn't mean that they are a female chef. Um, so it's just, it's just better to be cognizant of that fact within industries. Yep. Um, but yeah, I've got, I've had that so many times. I've had that so so many times. But whether people like it or not, um women in business face a different different reality to what men do and it's and you're gonna ask me how and why but okay then yeah. how and why <laughs> um there's been three really big factors in that for me growing at growing in this industry one um i had a dinner when i was 19 with a um with a customer who was a male and um, they, somebody saw me out with him and they were like, don't you think it's inappropriate that you're having dinner with a male customer? Like, why would it be, he, that's the only time he had available. Like, why would it be, but you wouldn't question that if it was a male having a, having a dinner. With so, a female, you mean? Yeah. 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 Interesting. Yeah. And what, what? How did that converse, like conversation carry on? Dinner, you know, yeah, yeah. Like you wouldn't really question that. So why is it different that I'm having dinner with a customer? Well, how did that conversation end? I just, I was so taken back. I was really taken back. And I, it made me feel like I was doing something wrong. Yeah. Um, instead of, okay, that's the only time when that's... Yeah, or just yeah. being practical. Exactly. Yeah. Can, uh, yeah. Challenge me then. What do I need to do as a man to help with the situation? Um, you know, I've had a lot of amazing support from the men around me. 
don't get me wrong, the biggest opportunity is that, and equally, I've had women from the top bash me as well. So this isn't just a man, male, female thing, and I'm really, really hesitant to, I hate when um, we bash men as well, mm-hmm. like that's just not okay for me, so um, it's been equal parts, women and men that have either brought, tried to bring me down or um, have said things that weren't always the most productive and helpful and supportive. Um, and it still happens today, right? But the men around us, it's really just to treat us as equals, you know, that the idea, the ideas that we all have, um, not just for females particularly, but the ideas that we all have around the table are valid as a company, as a team, as a collective of people sharing ideas, that everyone's ideas are important. Um, and it's that central supportiveness that every time someone says something, we don't meet it with a defense. We don't meet it with a no, I know better than you, why are you even talking? Mm. It's that mentality. The more open we can be to other people's diversities and ideas, um, that's what we can all do to be more inclusive of people as a whole. Cool. Yeah. And I can tell something as well that you've spoken about, like maybe not directly, but indirectly. You know, you've spoken about working from a young age and kind of all the things yeah. that you've thrown at. It seems like you're really a big believer, and tell me if I'm wrong, yeah. but it sounds like you're a really big believer in the whole paralysis by analysis. Well, what's that? So it's when you think about stuff too long but don't take any action. Yeah, So yeah. you paralyse yourself by yeah. overanalyzing yeah. stuff. Yeah, Because you yeah. seem to just throw yourself at it and see yeah. how you go. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I always, someone said to me the other day, they're like, uh, you're a you're not a uh, two plus two plus one equals five kind of girl. <laughs> you're a zero point seven five plus zero point two five plus two point five plus, and then you just kind of make your own journey up, and it somehow equals five, but you don't know how you got there. Um, but that's that's exactly it. I just go for for you know everything, all my energy to that one thing and I don't really know how I get there sometimes but I always end up joining the dots. So there's someone listening right now who's been sitting on an idea for ages oh, and stuff yeah, that they want to do. Yeah. Give them some advice or give them a boot up the arse or whatever yeah. you need to do. Look, it's honestly a uh, cliche so I'm going to spit some cliches real cool. quick. Okay, so first thing is the hardest part is starting. Yeah. <laughs> no, actually, the hardest part is not starting. I need to get you to do that face again later and yeah, I'll take yeah, a photo yeah, of yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But um, it's just like the biggest cliche, the hardest part, of, or like the hardest part of going to the gym is putting on your shoes. No, no, the hardest part is sitting in that bloody class or um, lecture hall or um, spin class or whatever and going through it. That's where the really, really hard stuff comes out. Um, the Look, you've got an idea. What's the worst that can happen? Literally, if you, what is the worst that can happen if you one start and one don't accomplish it, it fails? Let's say, what's the worst thing that could happen if it fails? And what's the worst that can happen um, if somehow it doesn't go the way that you want it to go, right? But it's all experience. What you're adding to your life is experience. What you're adding to your life is going through the journey of starting something, it might fail, but then doing something else, learning from that experience, and then applying that to what you do next. No one's born understanding and knowing the perfect next billion dollar company. No one's born knowing how to govern a board or sit at this being a CEO of a company. We all learn. It's the beauty of life is that we go through learning and self-development. Um, but I always ask myself 
what is the worst that can happen and what are my options what are my options in this case so for those people that are listening that have an idea and aren't doing anything to live out that goal and live out that passion you're doing yourself more harm by not starting it because what you're doing is you're giving yourself a boundary and saying I can't be the person that I want to be because I can't make the time I can't have the focus um, I've got too many other things going on um, but I promise you if you've got time to be watching Netflix every night for 30 minutes you can spend five <laughs> minutes of that working on what you want to be doing and it'll still add value to your life um, so what's the what's the worst that can happen if you actually start your idea nothing you learn yeah so that's it <laughs> cool and I know something you spoke about um, this morning with the students at Spotswood yeah. is um, the importance or your I shouldn't say the importance well, the importance but also your journey yeah. with time management yeah let's talk about that yeah so what well, at school let's go that far yeah. back were you late to class on things quite a bit or I mean actually let's dive into that too yeah. you weren't the greatest student were you I was the worst student <laughs> I'm not a good student I'm actually probably the, the suckiest student <laughs> Um, I was a bad student and I was a really bad daughter as well. Like, praise <laughs> my parents for putting up with my shit over, you know, my time in school. Um, late's the wrong word. Yep. Uh, I was just never there. Okay. <laughs> that late. That late, yeah. I was so late that I wasn't even in class. Um, I was talking to the girls today um, at Spotswood and... My time management, and actually, I should not be proud of this, but in some ways now, where I am now, I am really proud of it. Um, so in my last year of school, and that, and so you know how we have five periods in a day, um, or six, I think six periods, I can't remember. It changes, so man. It changes. Exactly. I was so, six when I was at school, so, now it's five. Okay, so. cool. So let's say six. Okay. Easy to break it up. Um, on Fridays, we, we got, so we got a few free periods um, in year 13 to like do study or whatever right but we all just went to the McDonald's or whatever Burger King and just sat around drinking whatever um, it was really interesting because on a Friday I would have my two periods in the morning I would have my the, like the 15 minute lunch short lunch break have another period and then you'd have lunch and then two more mm-hmm. so so five yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. um how my timetable was set is that I would have a free period before lunch on a Friday and then I would have one class um, after lunch. Sorry, so two, 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 five. Yeah. Me being me, I decided to get a job. So I decided to go work at a clothing store and I would not go to my last period class on a Friday and instead I would leave um, at after my third third period and I'd go and work at the clothing store so I was working eight hour days <laughs> <laughs> which is and you'd we'd be open late that on Fridays so I made money real quick but I managed my time so well mm. um not going to that last class which was so bad um that I could do school and work and make money um all because I structured my time accordingly which is not it's so terrible if a kid's listening to it don't don't do that <laughs> um, it's terrible terrible when you're in school focus on school you should, nothing should, should be a worry but for me it was just this like longing to actually be like have a grown-up job 
and why am I wasting my time at school when I could be out be making money? Like for me, that was literally the two sides of the coin. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of making money, yeah. I believe, and tell me if you think I'm wrong, but I believe that it comes with negative connotations. Like people, yeah. if, you, if you're in a business to make money, people can automatically assume you're a crook or yeah. if your agenda is to make a bit of cash. Yeah. Do you think that's true or did you, have you found that or do you think that mm-hmm. that's not always the case? Um, look, big corporations, it's just different. Different People need to understand that business is not just business that there are different levels of business. You try starting a company with no means of making money, that will fail real quick, mm. really, really quick. Versus a corporation like, um, you know, a Target or a Walmart or whatever, you know, big, big corporations that have gone public, they have stocks on the um, stock exchange, they've got multiple, hundreds if not thousands of investors and people that have poured money into this, they, they need to make money on their bottom line. And that can corpor- come with corporate greed. There's, but there's, that's different life cycles of business. So, I mean, know your person. If that person's a greedy, you know, slimy person that just wants to make money, then they're a greedy, slimy person that wants to make money. But there are other businesses out there, and, you know, mine included, that we would just want to make a change. But we need to make money in order to make that change. So just because someone's in business making money... Um, we should see that as a, okay, amazing. There are sustainable business in New Zealand who are hiring other New Zealanders or other people, other immigrants, other whatever, um, and creating a sustainable business for our economy. And that's how we need to see it, plain and simple. Is because if they weren't making money, they wouldn't have a sustainable business to go and employ the people that they're employing and to make a bigger impact to people's lives. Um, so that's, that's that's the trade-off cool yeah and i want to as well touch back on your parents very briefly you mentioned in jest of course that you were a horrible daughter (laughs) what have you learned now when you because we all get to this so i'll use myself an example you know when i was i don't know before i was 10 you know my dad was my superhero i mean he still is but you know a lot of things that because you you just don't click on to then you get to a stage where you go holy fuck and you're just like incredibly grateful for all the stuff that your parents have done can you tell me a little bit about that with with your parents yeah absolutely um i was a really bad daughter i just want to emphasize that i was a terrible daughter um i've gone through a lot of growth in the last year in this last year of my life where I actually sat down to try and understand why I'm the way that I am. And it's because my parents' work ethic, but as a child, you don't see that. We were always with babysitters. When we weren't with babysitters, we were alone at home, right? Um, My parents were always at work. My mum, my dad would make us lunch, send us to school. We'd come back home from school and school holidays, it would be my brother and I, or we would be down at the neighbor's house um, and they'd be looking after us. So. I didn't see my my parents for a really big period of my life. And I always thought it was because it was selfish. Mm. Because as a young person, you want that attention. You want that love and generosity and caring. You want your parents to be around. It's almost like we're the ones being selfish, but we exactly. don't realise it at the time. Eh? Exactly. And it's so hard because like with my kids, you know, yes, I want to be working to be able to give them a better future. But as a young child, you don't see that. The reason why I am who I am today um, and why I'm so relentless in the things that I want to do is that because my parents didn't know English very well, I was doing a lot of, and my little brother and I were the ones that were doing a lot of the, you know, calling up Spark and asking them why our bill was so high, 
calling up the electricity company to tell them that we're moving houses, um, reviewing documents for my mum and dad, and although they're very, very educated, you know, second, it's their second language, English is their second language. Mm. So it was, um, it was always us from a really young age doing those things. So I learned really quickly how to be a grown, a small adult. Um, but then for my parents, you know, it was like, why did you want to grow up so quickly? So there's the flip coin. It's like, no, I didn't want to grow up quickly. I had to. Like, are you kidding me? Who else is going to be there? You guys went around and, you know, they feel really bad now for putting us through that. But they couldn't have done anything different. Like, they're two people that have brought kids from halfway around the world, want them to get a great education, want them to be in an environment that's safe where they can play in their backyards and not worry about getting taken. You know, all of these things. Like, they worked hard to give us a better future. But you don't see that excuse me, as a young person, you see that as my parents are always working, they make no time for us. Um, but now where I'm at, it was the best thing for me leaving home. It was the best thing for me. I was a terrible daughter from ages 10 to 17. Why do you say that? Uh, I was just a brat. I'd sneak out. I was so... I was just, like, rebellious to the get to the core. I just wanted to be independent. No one could touch me. I knew everything. All of these things. I was just this little brat. Um, but I really understood my parents and what they'd given us when I left home, and it wasn't available for me anymore, and I had to do everything on my own. Um, I understood their their um, ethics and the reasons why they did what they did and I have a, an amazing relationship with my parents and truly if it wasn't for them I wouldn't be here um, I probably wouldn't have even been alive if it wasn't for their support and I know that if when I first moved to Wellington and I had no money if they hadn't supported me I would have gone down a very different path um, but even today like my dad um, woke up at 7 o'clock in the morning to drive me to the airport like that, they're still supporting me um, I forgot my glasses at home, so they dropped it off to the office, and it's in the mail. Like, I wouldn't have been able to do that without my parents. So, it's all of this, it takes an army and it takes a village to get to the point of where I am today, which is living out what I want to be living and realizing my truth and everything else that comes with it. You've spoken a lot about, you know, um, making time to go out there and, and achieve a lot of these goals and. and um, do a lot of the things that you're doing and it's actually quite funny because this question was asked to you this morning and I sort yeah. of put you on the spot a bit so hopefully you're warmed up to it now yeah. I'm not going to catch you too off guard no, but speaking of making time how yeah. do you make time for yourself yeah you know like <laughs> look, yeah it's honestly I love that question because mm -hmm. and I'm really honest about it work-life balance isn't a thing mm -hmm. and it's funny because it's funny because Jeff Bezos said it the other day and now it's a thing, like everyone's like, oh, okay, that, now that Jeff Bezos has said it, it's, it's like an actual thing. There is no such thing as work-life balance, if there can't be. I'm in the period where, you know, um, we've, got a whole we've got a team in Auckland and Wellington, um, we've got people that are relying on our product, we've got customers, we've got all of these things that need to happen, that need to take focus, that I won't be able to t make time for myself, and that's okay. Mm. That's okay. I don't have time to meditate every morning. I do not have time to um, get my hair done and turn off my phone. Even when I get my hair done, I have my computer right next to me and I turn the hair salon into an office. Um, <laughs> sometimes I don't have enough time to eat. These are all things that are okay, but 
the minute it starts becoming you're burning out, you're a menace to other people around you because you're not making time to sleep or do anything, that's when you need to make time. So I'm reaching critical mass right now. <laughs> how, does, how do you keep aware of that sort of thing though? Because some people get a bit in denial and you're like, man, you need to chill out there. I don't know what to do. I know, yeah. So my team have learned really quickly to not ask me how I'm doing. Okay. Um, and if they give me the look of, are you okay? I will, oh, <laughs> I just see red. It's like, but they know now. So um, I think... Within our team, we know what ticks other people off. Mm -hmm. So, you know, some people just need cake. Like, give me cake. If I'm feeling like that, (laughs) I just need a bit of sugar, I'll be fine. Um, But it's... You don't want to get to the point where someone's asking, dude, are you really okay? Like, you look burnt out. Are you okay? And, you know, your hair's been held up by a fucking paper clip and... Like, you haven't showered in two days. You're wearing the same clothes as yesterday. Like, you do not want to get to that point where you're not even surviving. Yeah. And so, and I, know my, I know my triggers, but it took me a really, really long time to just go, actually, you know what? I'm not going to say yes to every single dinner. I'm not going to say yes to every person that comes and asks me for something. I'm not going to say yes to friends and family that require something of me now and I just can't give the time to do it. Um, so yeah I've learned to say no really really quick but it's better to say no sometimes so help me help me help you sort of thing just role, yeah. role play yeah. I see or let's say we'll just say it's me and you yeah, yeah. I see you burning out yeah but how do I approach you you see me burning out you go Azal let's go for a walk that's how you approach it it okay. could be in the simplest way Azal let's just go for a walk um, but then also not okay. T- there's actually two sides to that coin too. I'll be yep. really, I'll be really um, cynical about this. Yep. There's two sides to that coin too. I don't like when people assume that because I'm in the place that I'm at now is that I am doing too much. Because I know how to take care of myself. It took me a long time to get to that point. Don't get me wrong. But in the same way, when people try and give me advice on how to like better take care of myself, I'm like, you don't know. You don't, so it's re, it's it's the fine line that we have to tread of being like, hey, let's go for a walk because I need to go for a walk. I need to do it. So let's go for a walk together because I need it. Um, and then asking how that person is, and when they say I'm doing good, or I'm doing fine, go really are you though? Like are you doing <laughs> fine? Because that fine response is the sure sure sign that they aren't doing good. They aren't doing well. Um, but getting someone to open up to you as well when they don't trust you that's not the right way either so it's easing into it just go for that walk talk about nothing and then get back into it and until that trust is built up then um going in deeper of why they aren't actually doing uh, doing well um and then being a support for them and most importantly keeping that secret like keeping that um that they can trust you Mm. and giving you that information just letting them speak to you in confidence absolutely because it's really hard like I don't know if you feel like this but sometimes I literally feel like I will tell somebody something and I know that it's going to get out because people are so loose-lipped and I don't know if it's always been like that but it's like it's, it's really difficult for me as well it was a big learning curve like I can still trust the person and it's not they're not going to tell other people to goss don't get me wrong those people exist too 
but yeah. they're just going to tell people because to them it's not a big deal they don't understand how much of a big deal it is to you so when things aren't a big yeah. deal you know like say yes. I don't know if I use a real silly example like yeah. you're expressing to me that you're going to go vegetarian yeah, yeah. and I my, and to me I'm like oh yeah, as I, as I said the other day, she's going to go vego, yeah, and yeah, someone yeah. might be like, "What? She's going to yeah. go vego?" Or to you, it might have been something really personal and private yeah, that you didn't want yeah, people yeah. to know. Exactly. And and so that I, I have to admit, I've I've got those people in my yeah, life. Yeah, 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 um, yeah, they're, yeah. they're not trying to goss yeah. or throw me under the bus. They just it's, it doesn't mean as much to them as yeah. it does to me. So yeah. there's certain things you have to watch out yeah. for. Yeah. Yeah. Well, a really good example. So I took my mother out to dinner the other day, and it's really rare that her and I just go to dinner alone. Um, and we were talking to these two people that we'd never met before next to us and because it was like a really fun experience dinner we start talking and she's like oh where have you lived in the states blah blah and I'm like oh I've lived uh, like you know spent some time here um, and then my mum starts telling you something really really personal about my life <laughs> and I am dying like literally I go bright red oh, I'm like mum what are you doing like what are you why are you telling this random person something like deeply deeply personal what did she tell her? her? No, no, I'm joking. Yeah, no, I'm not going there again. No way. If my mum was here, she'd bloody tell you too. She was like, I was like, mum, did you not think that that was something deeply personal that you shouldn't have told somebody random? She's like, she's so Turkish. She's like, is it? No, it's okay. People, you know, we're lives, we're beautiful. Blah, blah. She like starts raving on about why it was okay to tell this person. Um, and it wasn't okay. So being a really good, trustworthy friend <laughs> or a parent or a colleague is the pinnacle, is the upper echelon of people that you can trust in your life. Yeah. Is just telling them something and knowing that it won't get anywhere else. Um, yeah. Speaking of, I guess, like lines not to cross and stuff yeah. like that, yeah. it's a relatively new term that I've only just heard recently, but we spoke about it a little bit, yeah. I guess for lack of a better term, off air yeah. or before we started recording. Yeah. And that is this... Um, founder bashing sort of yeah. mentality can you elaborate on what it is and kind of how yeah. it works yeah absolutely so look the way that we're perceived and the and what it takes to actually get there are two different things um and we don't understand people's struggles but one thing that i'm really really and this is a big pain point from this year is that we look at people's successes and we go what dodgy thing did they do to get there mm. or what who have they um messed over to get to that point or no they couldn't have done that all, all on their own or within a team they had to do something like sell their soul to the devil to be able to get to that position yep and god forbid somebody god forbid a young founder in new zealand or anywhere else in the world makes a mistake makes a mistake that's in public knowledge right you've got these communities within facebook it's almost like the town square now that the that people go to facebook or instagram or social media to um feel like they can talk to people and troll them and um, spread negative connotations without actually understanding the story in its entirety because there are always two sides to the story um but feeling like they can bash that person because they hold a higher position in a company or a founder or has started something and have made a mistake mm. that they feel that they can go on a public forum and bash them in a public setting that to me is not okay like we've got a freedom of speech of course everyone has the right to their own opinion to their own thoughts but once we start 
taking somebody and taking their failures and using it against them, especially young founders, that to me is not okay at all. Do you see it happening quite a bit, do you? All the time. And I bring it up because it's not only happened to me, it's happened to um, family, it's happened to other young people in my industry and other young people who are my friends where people think that because they hear one new piece of news or one article or one post or whatever that that gives them the right to publicly shame and humiliate that person um, because they made a failure mm. the failures are what create us as human beings no one's perfect yet we think that that gives us the 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 right to do that in public um, and also just I want to make something really really clear as well and I always do this is that in the eight years that I've been doing this not one um, wholly accurate article has ever been written about me oh well not all one crazy yeah so how does that make you feel when you see that well it goes so do, what do you mean there's always a lie in there or always, always oh, like okay. something that's you know that they've misunderstood and they haven't that the reporter hasn't clarified or one assumption that they've um, read somewhere else and make it again and spin. It's like the Chinese whispers thing, mm. right? And we assume things. Sure. Can you share an example? I mean, you don't have, but is there something that was written yeah. about you that you'd yeah, like to yeah. speak to right oh now and gosh. correct? Like, give yeah, me some. I mean, not to that. Yeah, absolutely. But, yeah. Um, you know, when, uh, I don't, when I first started the company, um, my very first company story, um, there were articles that were saying that my co-founder, because he was male, that we were married, or they were in a relationship, and that's like, well, that's bizarre. Um, so that was, you know, and just because we were male and female, you, they make that assumption. No, and that is not the case. Um, other things, like, you know, what I see my friends going through, um, one way that they've either structured their business or something's happened in their business that has got some, like, negative media attention, there are always two sides to that, but mm. when the media come on and you have these little trolls behind these computers thinking that they can bash somebody, it's just not okay to me. Like it's it's something that's really prevalent in our startup culture, where we take a company, emphasize the fact that they've failed, and um, publicly shame them for making a mistake. Do you think it's a whole part of this tall poppy thing that we've got happening in New yeah. Zealand where we, we kind of see other people doing successful things and we love to chop them down? Like, yeah. I'll, I'll go on the record and say it, I believe that happens all the time with us. Oh my gosh. Do you reckon that's part of it? That's, it plays into it? I think that's it. I think that's absolutely it. That um, we see other people doing and living out their truths and um, see them get a degree of success and we have to, in our minds, come up with a reason of why that person got to the place that they did and that it can't just be that they did it out of good faith and doing the best that they damn well could at the time. We never, ever believe that. It's mm. always, our mind always goes to, they must have done something real shady to be able to get to that point. Um, and it's a, it's a rhetoric that needs to change. It has to absolutely change if we want to foster and grow companies here in New Zealand. No amount of grants, no amount of support, no amount of money can withstand a public perception of a company going through the pain of growing a company and then having that publicly shamed in a very public setting. No amount of money or support can ever, ever come up against that. 
Speaking of shame, something that you mentioned earlier on, I don't know if shame is the right word actually in this context, but I'll use that as my segue point. Yeah. You mentioned before, you know, that you, or you made, um, you kind of made reference or hinted that um, what happened in Christchurch yeah. was quite impactful mm. to you. Mm. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. What, yeah, what was your experience there or kind of what went through your mind, heart and soul when all that went down? It's, yeah, no, that was a, actually, I think for a lot of people, we didn't understand the magnitude of what happened, because, like, we were, I'll never forget that day, and at work, and just news reports had come out, so the news reports had come out that there had been a shooting in Christchurch, and it was in a mosque, and you're like, okay, well, that's bizarre, like, New Zealand, gun, what, what is this? Mm. And then they're going, a few people died. And you're like, a few people died. Like, what is this? What's going on? I went out to dinner that night because I I got the stories people were asking me. I was like, oh, well, it didn't sound like it was anything major. And that's such a, it's so sad for me to say that. Like, that still really hurts a part of my heart that I thought that it wasn't that major because um, we just hear this happening all the time. Mm. And as a human, I feel really, really crappy about that point that we've got to now where everything's become so desensitised. Um, and not, not understanding the full, full impact of what actually happened until I got home. And we're a Muslim family. Like, my parents pray, I pray, you know, we've got a very strong... Um, and although I don't practice it every day, um, and because I've grown up where I have grown up with just liberal... And my parents being very liberal, it's not always been at the forefront. I don't wake up and go, oh, I'm a, you know, I'm a Muslim girl. Don't really go, th- I don't really, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't wrap around my mind is that that's who I am. Yeah. But um, I didn't understand the full gravity of the situation until I got home and you saw the 49, that, that mm. death count. And to see my parents and my little brother who have grown up and have been to that mosque and you know have come from the Middle East to a country where we thought was safe right and to experience that it just rocked my whole world um, it rocked my world completely and it broke my heart when my little brother said to me that he didn't feel safe as a, as a Muslim boy here in New Zealand that absolutely annihilated me annihilated my heart annihilated the fact that there's you know this community in Christchurch all of a sudden understood that our that that race and that not race but that you know ideal and that faith was being targeted by um people that have hate in their heart for something that they know nothing about um yeah it was just a really really big realization a big big punch big punch to what we thought the world was yeah 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 definitely woke a lot of people up and kind of i wouldn't want to say ruined but for lack of a better term i guess tainted a little bit of this happy clean kiwi place to go to because i when i when it went down i was actually at womad here the world of music and dance and i i've been emceeing that for like 10 years now and i always say to people you know New Zealand welcomes you with open arms to you and stuff like that. I felt like such a hypocrite getting up and saying that after that had gone down. Like, I didn't feel like it. So, yeah, a lot of, I, I understand a lot of what you're speaking to. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned a little bit about faith there. Yeah. Um, and obviously, religion's quite a 
polarizing subject. Yeah. Um, I have to admit, you know, growing up in our house, it was it was pretty. Um, yeah, I will use the word polarizing again. My mum yeah. is kind of super religious, and yeah. and and me not so much. Yeah. Um, but we had a place now where. You know, like I, you mentioned meditation. I, yeah. I meditate and stuff, and and it's it's it's, it's very similar, you know, like yeah. to me. So, yeah. the debate that me and mum have to this day, it's, yeah. it's but it's it's healthy debate now. So yeah. she prays to a higher being, yeah. um, in a quiet place, yeah. and I meditate to myself. Yes, to me, essentially, it's the same thing, Absolutely. just a different perspective. What what are your views there? Absolutely, and I couldn't have said it in a better way. Mm. I could not have said it in a better way. Um, look, I think faith is deeply personal to everybody. I don't believe that um, just because I believe something that you should believe something else, and, and by no means. Um, and we all, I, I think I hear this a lot as well, but it's just being a good person, like at the core of it, being a good person, not spreading something hurtful about somebody, um, you know, not gossiping, not um, thinking of someone and going, oh, Oh, why do they look like that? Or what? What are they doing? And you know, have this like this thought of who do they think they are kind of mentality. I think it's just deeply personal. Like you, you find the things that you need to find at that moment in your mm. life. And for for us as a family, you know, my parents were just like learn about every faith. So we did. They taught us every single faith. Cool. And I think as parents, that's all you can do. Like, and so you get you get pieces of um, Islam and you get pieces of Christianity and um, you know Catholic and and Judaism and Buddhism and you know all of these ide- ideals. And you actually understand that they're all one the same. They they have the same ideals and the same connotations, just in different parts and in different ways of saying it. Some of it is deeply. Um, literal and some of the some of it is more um, uh, metaphorical yep. and you take it the way you want to take it as a human being and live your life awesome and that is it I don't want to add more onto that because I think that's a great way but look, I've got one more question to yes. ask you before I'm going to let you ask yes. a question yeah. so the question I've got for you and I ask this for every person that comes as a guest on the podcast every yeah. single person it's the only question I make sure I answer yeah. the rest of it's just conversation yeah. like we've been having yeah. Yeah. and that is there's someone listening to the podcast right now yeah. who's feeling a bit down and out um, you know I don't want to use the word depressed but they're, they're really at rock bottom what would your advice to them of course yeah. Bearing in mind, you're not a medical professional. Yes. Um, but what would your advice be to that person to help them get back on their feet? Yeah, absolutely. Um, look, it's okay to be in the place that you are. It's okay to feel the things that you're feeling. It's okay to be in the mindset that you have. And it is completely okay to be at exactly that moment in time. It's okay for all of those things to exist. It's interesting because it happens to all of us. Mm. I, I would not, have, I don't think I'd ever, ever, or I've never met somebody that's got all of their shit together. And if they did, it would be a miracle, I feel. Like, it just, I just don't believe that with any one of us in the seven and a half billion or however many billion people there are on this planet right now, that we haven't gone through hardships and one form or another that we haven't gone through um, tests that we haven't gone through loss that we haven't gone through deeply deeply sad moments in our life and that we've 
we've all all been through it and it's okay it's completely okay that's what I would say it's it's just okay it's okay to be feeling those things that you know we've all been there where it's like actually you know it would just be a lot easier and it's not the things that you're leaving behind or the things that you're um, stopping yourself from doing that's where we have to lean into it more that's where we have to lean in and say I am the center of my own happiness I can create that journey I'm the the creator of my journey and my path and what am I going to do as a person to not only help myself but to help somebody else that's feeling like this um, and to listen There you go. That was episode six of the Best Side Podcast. Zell Kochu, a really bad daughter. Now you'll understand why uh, it was titled that uh, now that you've heard the stories because a lot of people have been hollering at me saying, hey man, it's a bit of a rough title. Make sure you shoot us a review over on Facebook and also through any other platform that you are listening. For our Apple Podcast listeners, we're going to have the availability to write reviews for me very, very soon. Uh, so make sure you've got those handy. All the feedback we've been getting through the DMs on Instagram, people messaging us on Facebook too, and even the emails are coming through are all very, very greatly appreciated. So please do keep those coming. Who is going to be episode seven? Stick around to see right here with the Best Side Podcast. <laughs>